Welcome to the Big Mike Fund Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike, Mike Zlatnik. Today, it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome again, Alistair McDonald. Hi, Alistair. Hi there, Mike. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us again. This is a part two of a great discussion. And um, let's uh, pick up where we left off. So interest rates. Let's just cover this a little bit more. Um, so we had... Uh, substantial uh, increase of long-term interest rates in the United States since the beginning of the year as the economy continued to recover and the government um, uh, was writing a lot of checks. Uh, what do you think is going to happen next? Uh, the rates seem to have stabilized a little bit and they're not uh, rising as fast anymore. Uh, did we reach a temporary peak? Um, are we going to slow down? Uh, somewhat uh, is, is the Fed taking action, as far as you know, to um, slow down the rates increases, sort of form of a quantitative easing or mortgage-backed security purchases. Just curious, w w what do you think about where we are going with interest rates today? Uh, there's a, this is a really important subject, and I certainly would want to address that question, but I would also like to share the most crucial piece about interest rates that nobody seems to be paying attention to that I think speaks to a much larger risk than simply that of a protracted period of rising interest rates, which in and of itself is extremely dangerous anyway. Uh, the, the, the turn up in interest rates on the US long bond that began in July, August of 2020 uh, has by many measures, very, a lot of technical uh, just analyzing the charts, the behavior, the flow of funds, as well as fundamental reasons. There's a lot of reasons to be concerned that that low in interest rates was the low for the 40-year cycle of falling interest rates, which has been the backdrop to and largely the turbocharged fuel of so much of the asset explosion in values over the last 40 years, which is without precedent in US history. So uh, uh, though, though I have... Uh, some long bond positions right now, because I believe that they're currently oversold uh, and due for a, a pullback here in the third and fourth quarter of the year. There is a lot of structural reasons to be concerned. As I said, that the low that we saw uh, in 2020 was could be the low for the cycle. Now I say that as somebody that has been uh, very bullish on long-term bonds for some time, uh, I think that that party, there's evidence to suggest it, it may actually be over. Uh, to to splice apart what we refer to when we say interest rates, it's important that we separate the quality of interest rates or the quality of debt. So when we see a turn up, a significant turn up, say just in the performance of uh, the 10-year note, which was had a low of 56, uh, 0.56, 56 basis points, and is now at 1.7, 1.8 almost, that's not a 1.5% increase. That's a 300% increase in the cost of money, the uh, uh, cost of capital over such a short time frame. This is one of the important risks that we overlook when interest rates are low. And it shows up for entrepreneurs as saying, I'll just take out a loan, that they're lending it to me at 3%, et cetera. Uh, totally, yes, that is cheap. Relatively, 
It's not at all. All that it requires is a 1% or 2% increase uh, in interest rates, and we've effectively a 50 or 100% increase in the cost of capital. So for companies that are at this stage in the business cycle that are needing access to short-term capital with unsecured interest rates, they are taking on risks that the last 40 years of bull market and bonds has blinded them to. And I think that's a very, very important thing to consider. Uh, but so, so I, I have some concerns that, they, that they've turned up. What bothers me is that we've seen a rise, a, a rally in junk and what we really should call junk, but now you've called high yield bonds, uh, whilst government bonds have done poorly. This is a relative outperformance of risk uh, versus security. Should we see anywhere near the same turn up in rates with junk bonds as we have with high quality, this whole hot money episode that we're living through is going to come to an end. Uh, you know, if we were to see a threefold increase in the price of junk bond yields, that's a market that's, uh, that, that would face a very, very large downside fall. Uh, I don't wish it, but it's just interesting. You know, if it's good for the goose, it might be good for the gander. Yeah, that's great commentary. I really love the key point you said, the increase of long-term rates from uh, under half a percent to where we are now, it's a threefold increase. The cost of money has tripled for those who, who you know, whose loans are, are packed to the long-term bond. And uh, the other the other point that, that you, you finished your, your sentence was that the junk bond yields, the risk-adjusted return is just not there. People are paying obscene prices for the risk that they're taking and they don't even realize it. So that is, it's a danger zone. It's a massive danger zone because uh, there's a lot of junk bonds. It's probably, you know, largest part of the, of, of the, uh, of the market at risk now. And if, if that, that uh, trench is considered to be riskier and the investors are demand, demanding higher interest rates, you're right. Cost of borrowing could go up and then it could, it could put a lot of, um, a lot of breaks on the economy, massive breaks. I mean, this is the, uh, I, not in contrast to what you're saying, but I also just want to point out there is a, an, an opposite opinion to what you mentioned, that the interest rates have, have hit the bottom and they are now bounced off the bottom and we're climbing up. There is the grand conspiracy theory and then the Japan model that the interest rates haven't reached the bottom. This is a temporary uptick. And then at some point, U.S. government will stop spending money the way it's spending now as a drunk sailor. At that point, we will go back in a deflationary environment and the rates will go towards the Japan model. They'll go into negative territory. And when debt to GDP ratio gets so much out of control, you don't have a choice. You just need those very low or negative interest rates to, to keep the thing afloat. So and, I and, and, those and, sentiments. Exactly. You're exactly right. And that is actually my expectation. I'm simply speaking about what concerns me in the more recent past of the last 10 or 12 months about interest rates. Uh, I, what, I, you know, none of these are forecasts. It's more concerns, that the things that keep me up at night, so to speak. What is, uh, what, if I were to make one forecast, is by the completion of this cycle, if we consider what we're through, still a half cycle with a very modest correction uh, in asset prices last year with COVID, very modest, uh, considering standard uh, uh, bull market uh, corrections, uh, is that was fast, it was violent, but it wasn't particularly large. Uh, 
the one thing I am confident about is that credit quality spread between junk and high quality will widen. And when that happens, that could happen either by junk bonds yields staying where they are and U.S. government interest rates and high quality rates falling, or, of course, uh, them staying uh, where they are and, and junk bond yields rising. There's a number of ways that can be achieved. None of them end well for high yield and junk bonds right now. The, the, to your point of the risk adjusted return, it just makes it one of the worst possible investments one could make right now. Uh, when we look at you know, things like HYG or JNK, just simple ETFs for your listeners to track, and we see yields of you know, four, four and a half percent in an ETF basket that has a 6.8% default rate. This doesn't make any sense. You're getting lower yield than you have a default rate. And that's a 50-year default rate, uh, of which the vast 40 of them have been boom times. So there's a lot of reason to to doubt this ebullience about junk bonds right now and uh, cheap and uh, high-risk credit. Yeah, the, the most fascinating thing is, um, uh, I don't know if you, you, you probably are aware of infinite banking and the whole life uh, insurance investing. And um, uh, I've had a number of conversations with folks in that industry and, and, and effectively the insurance companies have nowhere, have nowhere to put the money. They, they're chasing yield. That's one of the reasons they're buying less quality bonds because they need to park the money somewhere. And um, there's a there's ton of money chasing yield and that's a big problem because... Um, Quality yield is just not exciting enough for them, and they wind up in in the junk yields. And it, it is a danger zone, like you said. Default rates are ahead of the yield, you know, coupon that you're collecting on the bond, which is you effectively operating with expectation of a negative return. So, yeah, excellent. <laughs> Uh, you, you're you're so right on, and this is an important thing for all of us to be aware of. This search for yield pushes otherwise conservative investors out onto the frontier of very, very sketchy markets. It also pushes hot capital into industries that up until now have not been victims of it. Uh, we've seen it in dentistry where three years ago, uh, you know, we were seeing 15 times EBITDA sales on dental practices. Uh, I was at a, a dear friend's conference uh, speaking there and I, st- I stood and I said, we are late cycle in hot money in dentistry. And this is essentially the high water mark. Now, those same practices selling for five, 5.5 times EBITDA. That's a 66% implosion in the multiple of people we're paying. That hot capital is now poured over into another industry of which I am participating, which is veterinary space. I received, literally, on Friday of last week, an offer to buy my six-doctor veterinary hospital for 13 times EBITDA. And not a three-year smooth EBITDA, the trailing 12 months. Uh, it, it's... So, and of course, and you know, I've spoken with friends and on my own podcast, I knew this was coming. It's nothing amazing about me, but once you understand the flow of capital seeking a yield, you know where it's going to go. Pain clinics, dental practices, veterinary care, this defensive oriented industries that they feel, well, you know, everybody, everybody has teeth. Everyone's going to need to go to the doctor, et cetera, et cetera. And with it comes all of the complexities of running these businesses, legal, medical, compliance, and oversight. They're far more complicated than these private equity groups are aware. Yeah, it's fascinating. These professional investors, they're operating like dumb and dumber money. I hate to put it this way. I mean, I mean, this all due respect, but they're overpaying for the assets because they got nothing else to, um, to invest in. But now let's talk a little bit, shift the conversation just a little bit about the possibility of a cliff. 
So the government is spending a ton of money and a lot of people have, have substantial concerns. When is the party going to end? I mean, drunken sailor, the government is writing a ton of checks. Now we're dealing with um, uh, one party controls all parts of the government, the, the House, the Senate, the, uh, the White House. And they are uh, intending to spend as much as they can possibly spend. And that, that, that appears to, to be taking place. Uh, also, in parallel, uh, there's an attempt to increase taxes. The Biden proposed latest uh, tax increases are um, um, almost counterproductive. <laughs> this one part I'd love you to co- I'd like you to, to comment on it is that the increases in the capital gains rate. What's really fascinating historically, they reduce they reduce uh, revenue collections, not increase it, because the compliance and the avoidance uh, goes through the roof. So they're trying to raise revenue. I think the result of this will be most likely it'll be very counterproductive on the capital gain side. Obviously, they'll increase revenues if they increase the rates um, based on withholding. People can't really do much about that. But um, is there a cliff? At some point, the government can't continue to do what they, what, what they do. I mean, they, they, they are in a crisis mode spending uh, spree. Will this end at some point? Maybe it will end when the Republicans take the House in midterm elections. Again, we don't know that, but it's a possibility. Uh, what will happen at that point? Are we looking at a substantial slowdown in the government spending as a result, the economy will not have all that fuel or um, the economy will have enough momentum that'll keep rolling even without the government massive expenditures? Well, the, this is such a big deal that if we look at household incomes for the first quarter of 2021, they appear to have a 6% increase, which everybody is very excited about. But if we strip away government transfer payments, they have actually been flat since October of last year. So this is a this is a big deal. And what's happening is governmental money is starting to crowd out uh, regular small business. We've found ourselves over the last 18 months having to compete with the government simply to uh, keep people employed uh, because the incentives and packages and so forth are so deleterious. Uh, In fact, two professors at the University of Chicago in February did a deep analysis on the Biden plan at that time's iteration of it, which is barely modified at all, as we see it today here in May of 2021. Uh, And their research made the case that this is not going to support jobs, it's going to destroy them. That what they used as a sample couple, a husband and wife couple in Kansas, that had both both lost their jobs and had two children annualized the benefits that they stand to receive between additional stimulus, standard federal support, and state unemployment benefits, et cetera, the household annual benefits annualize out at $140,000 a year. This is for two unemployed people with two children. In the state of Massachusetts, where the unemployment insurance is the highest, that same couple stands to be compensated $170,000 a year. So imagine that you're in, how many businesses, first of all, and how many of those businesses have positions, uh, employees in their stable that are earning more than 140,000? How many of us can afford to compete with Uncle Sam? And this adds, uh, I have been uh, leaning toward a, a fear of debt and asset deflation for a long time as being the real threat. We caught a glimpse of it during the financial crisis. Uh, We've caught another glimpse during the credit freeze of COVID and so forth. 
But this is the first time in my experience in the United States where inflation suddenly becomes, and it's the, really this is a new, uh, this is a change of, of uh, expectation for me, that inflation is a legitimate concern. And it has not been a legitimate concern outside of episodic uh, supply chain type breakdowns and so forth, which are all transitory in my opinion. But for the first time, and the reason that it hasn't been uh, sustained and rather episodic is the one critical piece is incomes. We need to see a rise in incomes sustainably for inflation to, to get its, its foothold. The government is doing that. Uh, and this is a very dangerous, very dangerous precedent. Uh, to get more specifically to your point, though, when does this end? Will the government stop? The answer is, historically speaking, no. Uh, it won't be an event. It will be a process like so many, just as the fortunes of a company might rise and fall, just as that old saying in asset markets, a bull market climbs a wall of worry and slides down a slope of hope. This is a slope of hope. And in my experience, as both an employer and an investor and a strategist and advisor for many years, one of the things, one of the bedrock principles of my belief and discovery is that once somebody acquires a benefit, nothing short of death will separate them from it. And how quickly benefits become entitlements, that happens faster than the check, than the, the ink dries on the check. This is what we're dealing with right now. How are we going to convince that household to sharpen their skills, upgrade to a globalized AI type economy and so forth and, and get back to compete? And even if they do, how long will it take them to surpass that $140,000 benefit for doing nothing? Now, this is not to say that I, I, I don't, of course, I believe that we need to take care of uh, the, the most unfortunate in society, uh, but this is, uh, this is vote buying and pandering of the highest order. And I want to point out, because it's very easy for us to get partisan about this, this began under a Republican administration last year and is merely being accelerated by the new one. I'm less enamored with red versus blue. I'm more concerned about bad ideas than bad people. And there's a lot of them out there right now. Yeah, it's, it's a drug. It's a, uh, it's a cocaine of um, this economy. It, it's boosting this economy and uh, you, 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 you absolutely correct. It is a massive uh, competitive pressure on the private business. I had a call with the CEO of a company uh, we're close with, working with. He's trying to hire. He can't find qualified people. It's so hard. It's just because it, 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 the government dollars are competing with the private employment opportunities. And many people are just choosing to stay home, get, enjoy their free time, and uh, get the same pay as they would if they worked in a private uh, enterprise where they would have to spend their 40-plus hours a week. So that um, it is... You can't compete with Uncle Sam at the same time. Um, it, it feels like if there is no programmatic slowdown in this, th this 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 is going to be out of control. This, like you said, from from help to entitlements, it's a very short path. And once people get used to this, if you withdraw this, there's going to be massive, you know, withdrawal uh, pain from you know a lot of people, and that's uh, that's not going to be well received. So politicians are very concerned. In the, about their electability. So uh, we, we're going to get uh, accustomed to this. And at the real level we're spending, I, I don't know how much 
that we're inquiring versus the GDP growth, it feels like uh, this is going to get out of control. It can't create, like you said, real inflationary environment. The wage inflation and then the uh, continuous, you know, it's a spiral. It's an accelerating spiral. Yes. Hopefully yes. it's not going to be like your, your, your country of home or Zimbabwe where we, you have to pay for lunch before you, you order it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that hyperinflation seems some way off, but uh, on the, it certainly we extrapolate the trends that are now just forming themselves and th that doesn't quite seem as far-fetched as it did to me just a year ago. Well, but let's take a step back. Is there a possibility that the government will just not be, not want at some point, or, or will desire to slow down this 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 uh, crisis uh, expenditures? Is this a real possibility where the government says enough is enough? You have, let's just say, midterm elections, Republicans take the house and they say, hey, this this is crazy, so. Expenditures stop. A lot of the there may be a phase out um, uh, timeline, or uh, it can be hopefully not a cliff where the government says enough is enough, unemployment will run out, will stop. What do you feel? Is this a real possibility, or like you said, once you get used to the to the cocaine, you can't get out of it, get that get that stopped. So, what are we looking at? A real scenario? We, is a cliff a possibility or the government is just going to continue to extend unemployment benefits, continue to provide all kinds of other support and um, just keep, you know, keep borrowing and keep, keep feeding the economy with cash without creating the jobs? Yeah, it's a, it's a two, two things. I think that we will go through, uh, I anticipate uh, a fairly ugly uh, second, uh, excuse me, third and fourth quarter of 2021, as a lot of these benefits uh, uh, time out and so forth. And as the data begins to reveal itself as how much of this is being supported by temporary uh, unsustainable um, benefits. So I think Q3 and Q4 will be where the rubber meets the road. Uh, to the possibility of a governmental initiative to cut back these incentives. I think that's extremely unlikely. Uh, and evidence, we just have to remember two critical things about the political process. The first is, it's not their money. And the second is, they will always move toward buying votes. They'll always do that. They do that everywhere. That's what success in politics looks like, is popularity. Uh, it's also worth remembering that as remarkable as the stimulus package was, uh, President Trump, before he left office, got it said that's not enough, and he would do more. Uh, and I think it's not about the characters, but it is about the philosophy of desperate people approaching a, a uh, uh, approaching a voting uh, situation, a, a vote that is critical for them. They will they will absolutely outpromise each other. So is there hope that a Republican uh, uh, kind of lighthouse will emerge in this next uh, midterm cycles? Possible. The question is how much damage will be done in the form of this free drug given to both red and blue voters between here and there? Because I think that will dictate how they will have to adjust. To have to have the Democrats show up and say, we want to do a 1.9 second round of stimulus at the end of last year and have the seated president say, I want to do more. That's a conservative. I think that, again, it doesn't matter what we think about the individuals. This is about 
what motivates political interest? Uh, you know, there's, there's no benevolent overlords uh, at the end of the day. And, you know, the history of our respective home countries just makes that more stark, uh, but no more different. Yeah, that's a great wisdom. Thank you. So, um, but you said something contradictory. I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost not contradictory, but it's, it's kind of puzzling. So if you expect Q3 and Q4 to be, um, it's where, you know, the, the truth is revealed uh, when some of these benefits run out. On the other hand, you're saying that there is no political will to stop. Uh, it, uh, it, to me, it's a little bit of the contradiction. It's almost like they won't let those benefits run out. People are going to still continue to get benefits. They'll find a way to extend them. So why is Q3 and Q4 a danger zone for the economy? Well, you're right. And not so much contradictory in terms of a forecast, but contradictory in the possible outcomes. Uh, this is the situation that the current administration is going to have to address. And the reason that I think it's going to be a challenge for them is the, the, the beauty and the poison of unsustainable support is that it looks like it's okay to start taking it away. And this, this same problem has been, the same error has been made repeatedly by the Federal Reserve. You know, let's remember that it was just going into 2021 that the Feds felt this is a perfect time for us to start raising rates. It's showing up again now in the Feds uh, narrative and notes of just over the last couple of weeks that by the third or fourth quarter of this year, we should be able to go back to uh, raising interest rates. Uh, they've always, always shown up too late with the wrong policy, where it looks like it's working great, we can take it away. And they realize that the bulk of this life support excuse me, as unsustainable as it is, is far more baked into the pie of everybody's assumptions than they realize. And this gets to something that I'd, I'd love to touch on, where I'd say there's a critical piece about interest rates that nobody's paying attention to. Uh, it's worth remembering what interest rates are meant to represent. They are an indication of risk. That's what an interest rate serves as an indication of risk there is a myth we touched on in our previous conversation that the government or the Federal Reserve controls interest rates. This is an absolute fallacy, and it is an expensive fallacy. It is a fallacy that people believed all the way through Lehman Brothers' bankruptcy, all the way through the financial crisis. And this is because myths can endure longer than our, uh, our willingness to see them as such. But the Federal Reserve doesn't control interest rates. They simply control the rate at an overnight level that they lend it to a handful of small institutions. They have zero control over the five, one, five, 10 year, 20 and 30 year uh, bond issues. They don't. This is something that even Bill Clinton didn't understand. Uh, in 1996, in meeting with Larry Summers, he said, well, let's lower the interest rate. And Summers said to him, we don't get to decide. And this came up in our last conversation. It is the lender that decides the rate, not the borrower. That's right. Ever. So the, the notion that they can control interest rates, they're not. So what they've done by suppressing the natural rate of interest is they have broken the most valuable light on the dashboard, which indicates degrees and uh, degrees of severity of the risk that something represents. When I'm getting nothing on my, you know, on my 10-year government note, it, the jump to 3%, 4% for junk seems like a very small leap 
But as a risk profile, it is a giant leap. And this is what happens when we break the fundamental structure and value that interest represents, which is an indicator of risk. uh, We completely create a, a massively artificial asset bubble as people misinterpret risk profiles and find themselves buying investments that they have no business owning. It also drives people into, given that we're in effectively a zero interest rate environment uh, on an inflation adjusted basis for so many assets, of course, we're going to be driven to speculate in NFTs and Dogecoin and all of these things. Why not? Why not? We're earning nothing uh, in our bond portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the risk of artificially suppressed interest rates over time as they break the risk pricing mechanism. That's right. That that's actually a great wisdom, and and uh, we all, you know, the, the way I put it, because um, some of the business, what we do, what we do, we we lend money on fix and flip projects, and we charge hard money rates, and those rates represent real risk. I can't imagine if the if the if we had to lend at the government rates, it's almost like a, the joke that um, I crack is when the government lends you money on a thirty-year mortgage at these very low interest rates. It is uh, such. It, it, it is nothing but a massive subsidy because if the true risk-adjusted rates were in the market, you'd be paying a higher rate on the mortgage. That's the reality. If you didn't have the government uh, subsidy, so you are absolutely right that the interest rates, unfortunately, are artificially manipulated. Uh, and as much as you said, the Fed doesn't manipulate uh, the rate, the long-term rates. For some reason, uh, the market is just not pricing the risk properly. And maybe it's, it is a global risk and a global problem. And when, when people wake up one day, uh, we may have you know, a substantial shake, uh, shake up in the interest rates, but when it happens, it'll be extreme volatility and hopefully we're not gonna get there anytime soon. Alistair, this was really awesome. I really appreciate your wisdom. Uh, we are, all good things must come to an end. You ever heard that expression? Uh, we're running out of time so time flies and you're but you're the pilot appreciate your uh, your wisdom and uh, your time and would love to have you back uh once again please tell the audience if they wanted to engage you as a speaker uh as a coach or how would they reach out to you uh you know i think i embarrassedly mentioned last time i don't have much of a web presence uh there's a website out there alastair.vip a-l-a-s-t-a-i-r.vip or otherwise facebook is a simple way to reach me i'm just a regular guy like everyone else and uh always interested in talking to interesting people and your evidence of that mike so thanks very much thank you alastair again uh i would love to have you back We'll, we'll give you a little break we'll give you a little space you did two episodes i'm grateful thank you kindly and uh Appreciate your wisdom, and uh, we'll we'll talk so, soon. I, enjoy, <laughs> enjoy uh, the the weather, improving weather. Things are getting a little Thank little you. better. It is. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.